Hey everyone, welcome to the September episode of Health Equity Mondays. You are joined by Jasmine and Omari, and today we are going to discuss about the new COVID vaccine rollout, which is the first privatized rollout since the pandemic, and childhood poverty more than doubles from its 2021 low. So, wow. how are you doing? I'm doing well. It has been a long two weeks, but doing well, you know, I feel good to be home and to have this Saturday to relax and record videos, which is outside of the relaxation, but it's going to be a good Saturday. You know, supposed to be playing some Catan with some friends and um, just taking it easy since I've had a very long two weeks. How are you doing? I am relaxing as well. Uh, Tropical storm Ophelia has landed and it is rainy and cold. I went outside with my dog this morning and I felt very disrespected by the weather. (laughs) Um, So, so yeah, I will probably be catching up on some schoolwork um, and just enjoying the, the silence of the rain that has fallen amongst the DMV. So... That's that's real though, because it it is raining here in North Carolina as well, and it is very cold. So I can imagine, well, not very cold, but it's cold. So I can imagine that it is cold up there as well. And um, as as I've heard someone say recently, it is sweat almost sweater weather sweater weather season. So you know you got to get your sweaters oh, ready yes. for the weather. Oh yes, it's definitely fall. Like I'm claiming it. <laughs> I, I actually actually really like the fall here in uh, North Carolina because there's just the change in foliage, the fall foliage is just really beautiful. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to a lot of that as well. Yes, it is apple cider and s'mores and I'm not a pumpkin spice person, but I guess it's also that season too. So That is correct. That is correct. And yeah, I actually might be going to apple picking thing later today but the weather is kind of crazy so we'll see what happens uh not today do it another day (laughs) we'll see we'll see but thank you all so much for joining us today be sure to subscribe if you have not as yet and share it with a friend greatly appreciate it so the first topic that we're going to get into is the new covid vaccines get fda approval so just to give a little bit of context, and I will not be sharing any articles this time, but all the links are linked below for all the articles that I got this information from, is that earlier this month, the FDA approved the COVID vaccines from Moderna and Pfizer and its partner, BioNTech, for people 12 and older and under an emergency use authorization for children ages 6 months to 11 years old. This is the first commercial COVID vaccine rollout since the start of the pandemic, which is something I'll get back to in a short bit. So the vaccine rollout has had some snags in this process, which is definitely understandable. So one of the things that I think you all should know is that you can still have the vaccine paid for by public or private health insurance, but it has to be someone that is in your network provider. And just to give some more context on this, 27.5 million or 10.2% of the U.S. population is uninsured. And let me break that down. That's 12% of the black population and 9% of the white population is uninsured. And just to show that this vaccine rollout is going to affect people of color more broadly, 19% of the Hispanic population and 12.2% of the American Indian and Alaska Native population are also uninsured. And in many instances, 
many insurers are denying coverage of these vaccines, with many of them blaming it on the billing codes not being correct and different things that are happening in their systems. There are also pharmacies that are canceling appointments because they don't have access to vaccines as yet or their stockpiles have decreased. And if you are uninsured and you're trying to get a vaccine, in many places, it's going to cost $155 to get this vaccine, which is very inaccessible to many people out there. I think this just highlights the feeling of the federal government to really plan and ensure that the entire population, especially those without health insurance, are able to easily access this new vaccine that is out, especially as we have seen the cases rising. And it's so important just to understand many times people who are the ones without insurance and not because of lack of trying, because many times it's because it's cost too much or they aren't in jobs that provide health insurance. They are the ones that are sometimes most impacted by these illnesses and ailments and the ones that need the vaccines the most. As well as I think it's important to just highlight that the public health community has not done a good job on mass scale of building trust with these communities. And many times, especially now, they're probably feeling very abandoned by the public health community, by the people that have been telling them to get vaccines. I just want to reiterate, this is the first privatized COVID vaccine rollout since the pandemic. And it's really showing that the newly privatized era for the COVID vaccine is not going great. It will really be interesting to see how this rollout continues to play out um, into getting the vaccine into the hands of the people that need it the most, no pun intended. Or if this will be an inflection point of a growing trend of more COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, and deaths, which is truly what I, I am hoping is not the case. And I hope that we definitely take the steps at the federal government all the way down to the community level and to your individual level to mitigate this before it gets out of hand. I don't know what's going on. Okay. And I just got two more lines, two more lines. Okay. This really opens up the conversations for the benefit of universal healthcare and really creating an unfragmented and really creating an unfragmented system where it has access points for people. Blah, blah, blah. This opens up the conversation for the benefits of universal healthcare to really address the inherent inequities that the current system produces for people of color. So this is my plea to start truly building strong public health and community partnerships with many communities, with diverse communities and their leaders so that they are not left out of the conversations and so that we can really truly ensure that these communities are getting the health education information and access that they need to have their best health. I hope that we don't end up in a situation where the people who need the vaccine the most don't get it. Um, I think that we'd have to look towards other vaccines to see what potentially might happen. The problem being, though, is that like you can get a flu vaccine for free because the COVID vaccine is new. It's not free yet. And I don't know when that happens, because I imagine just because of how pharmacy works and how all of that works, they want their money. And $155 is not cheap. I thankfully have insurance and was able to get mine for free, but I know that that's not going to be the case for everybody. So 
we'll, I think we're going to learn a lot from this rollout. Yeah, especially when we consider the intersection of people who are uninsured with people who have less financial means, just how burdening, burdening that is on them. And it really highlights the conversation that was happening when the vaccines were universally accessible to everyone and just how how that just changed how people are able to access vaccines and interact with the healthcare system. And it's it's really is disheartening to see that this is happening right now when we know that this was going to be the case, but it will be interesting to see how this all functions. But I think the, the federal government has a larger role to play in ensuring that it's just accessible to everyone so that we aren't dealing with catastrophic issues on the back end. But I think that is a plea that all public health people have been saying and continue to say, and we need to continue to advocate for. So that is that is the end of my two cents on this. And I will be getting my <laughs> vaccine on Monday. I heard that it is making people very sore. So I will be getting it on Monday because I know I want to play some soccer or football uh, tomorrow. So I will not be getting it today, but Monday. So I may, might be posting more about that when I do get it. Hopefully, hopefully I am able to get it. I'm, I'm, I'm actually now thinking I have work things to do, so we will see. And I'm like <laughs> thinking about this, like that's a literally another barrier that people are facing. It's like, when can I get it? Where can I get it? If I go to somewhere, are they actually inside my my provider network, and am I actually going to get covered for this? Which are things that like are very easy for me and Jasmine to talk about as people who have jobs that give them insurance, and my insurance is very good. I should, I should add, but these are barriers that people are dealing with and we need to create the solutions and work towards solutions so that everyone is able to access the vaccine as easily as we are. Yeah, I got mine already. So if you're listening and you're worried about it, um, my arm is sore, but I will caveat that I got the flu and the COVID vaccine in the same arm. So that might add to the soreness that I have. Um, I thankfully have been okay. I've continued to be able to like exist and I'm not like in bed. Um, so if that changes, of course I'll let everyone know, but so far so good. So go out and get vaccinated. Yep. Well, we're glad that you're doing well. And key, key note here is that I had a coworker that got their flu and their COVID vaccine in different arms. And that is a bad idea. If you're getting both of them, get them in one arm so you can lie down on that arm or not have to only lie down on your back or your stomach. So that's just a little bit of health education information for you all out there. <laughs> one sore arm is better than two. I think so. So if you've been enjoying this episode so far, um, you'll probably also enjoy my email blast where I send out a lot of different information around public health topics, public health articles. I share job opportunities, internships. So be sure to check that out. It is linked below. Just sign up. You'll get an email sequence as you are invited to that. But then I try to post bi-weekly. So just look out for those emails on Fridays as of now. And if you want to know about what it takes to journey into the world of a doctorate in public health, you would love my newsletter, Becoming Doctor Health Equity Jazz, where I discuss all the things that are happening within my DRPH journey. I discuss how I try to continue to have fun and then 
just kind of tidbits on what's going on and what the month is and all kind of health equity things. So join my newsletter. It's free. Link below. (laughs) All right. So our next topic is childhood poverty. And before discussing the current child poverty rate, I want to put some context around how the U.S. defines poverty. To note, the official poverty measure has not been updated since the 1960s when it was created to determine the resources a family needs based on a bare bones food budget. Mm, mm, it does mm. not take <laughs> it does not take into consideration major life expenses like housing, childcare, or geographical differences in cost of living. So in 2011, the supplemental poverty measure was introduced, which includes consideration of nutrition benefits and housing subsidies, along with costs such as taxes and out-of-pocket medical expenses. And it also determines a poverty threshold using a more diverse set of necessary expenses. The reason the supplemental poverty measure is useful is that it shows how much government subsidies help with poverty. So. Keep in mind, when we're discussing child poverty, we are looking at the share of children under the age 18 who live in families with incomes below the federal poverty level as defined by the Office of Management and Budget. To note, in 2022, the poverty threshold for a family of four with two children was $29,678. I'm just going to say, I don't know who is surviving off of that with four people. Um, yeah. 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 That That is like mind boggling and startling in so many different ways. Yes. Yes. So what has happened? According to a September 12th NPR article, the poverty rate in the U.S. has risen dramatically in the years since pandemic benefits ran out, and the child poverty rate has more than doubled, according to the U.S. Census Bureau's annual data on poverty, income, and health insurance, which was released on Tuesday. Census data shows in 2021, childhood poverty hit a historic low of 5.2%, But in 2022, it increased to 12.4%, the same as the overall poverty rate. This surge happened as record inflation was rising and a lot of pandemic relief ran out. And census officials and other experts say a key to this was also the child tax credit. So I don't know if you all remember, but among some of the pandemic relief was a child tax credit that was given to everybody. It was not based on income, and typically um, the child tax credit is based on income, which is what has happened now. So that's um, one of the things that they're attributing to this this large doubling in the child poverty rate. So you may be asking, what does this mean for in the long run for children and families? Um, you know, why are we talking about this? So a 2014 Child Trends article outlined five ways in which poverty can impact children. It can harm the brain. It can create and widen achievement gaps. It leads to poor physical, emotional, and behavioral health. Poor children are more likely to live in neighborhoods of concentrated poverty. And poverty can harm children through the negative effect it has on their families and their home dynamics. So, of course, when we look into the data, as with most public health issues, child poverty is not equitably distributed among the population. 
Data from the Annie E. Casey Foundation shows that 30% of children living in poverty in 2022 were Black, 29% American Indian or Alaska Native, and 22% Hispanic or Latino. So we have long-term health implications. We have inequitable distribution of childhood poverty. And we have what looks like could have been a fix for it. But now, because we're, quote unquote, out of the pandemic, we no longer have child tax credits to help with this. So it's disheartening. It it is very disheartening. I was just reading this book, Poverty by America by Matthew Desmond, and he really just highlights a lot of the systemic issues and the history of poverty in America. And he also outlined some solutions So maybe that's something that I can bring back to the conversation just to talk about poverty more broadly, because as we know, the systems have been created in a way to create inequitable poverty in populations. Granted, there's still a lot of white populations and they are the majority in like in, in numbers and like counting like actual individuals who are in poverty. But one thing that I would highlight from the book is that though there are no communities of white people in the U.S. that are clustered together with just poor white people. In the Black community, when you go into a impoverished community, everyone there is impoverished. But in the white community, they see, white and other communities, they see something different where not everyone is clustered. So you're still going to have interactions with people who are outside your economic class, which cre- creates like more thought opportunity as well as other things that I'm, I'm butchering here. No, you're not butchering because no. one of the, one of the harms to children is living in concentrated poverty. And then when you're living in those concentrated areas of poverty, you're living with environmental toxins, you're living with more exposure to violence, and then more like social ills, quote unquote. So you're also attending or more likely to attend schools with fewer resources and facilities that are grossly inadequate and with school leadership that is more transient. So the concentrated poverty and just being without the access to potentially have more affluence from people living in higher socioeconomic brackets, it does have an impact. So, yeah. And like, just like that simple example of if you're white and impoverished, you're probably still in a community that people around you have more money. So they're paying more taxes and that goes back into your education system where if you're black and you're poor, you're living in a community that is impoverished wholly. So there is no resources from that tax base to go into the the school system. And that is just replicated in all the systems that we see around us. Um, And that's just a a good example of that. But yeah, a, a lot of work to do and the U.S. being the richest country in the world, there's a lot that we can actually do to ensure that people, or at least a lot of the people that are in poverty right now, are not in poverty, but living it with livable wages and having a good quality of life. Yeah, this is why, um, you know, we're coming up towards times of elections and times of conversations about, oh, my platform is this. This is why it's super important to be invested and to know what locally is happening within your area, because it could help 
change some of this for children that are living in poverty um, because I think it's I think it says a lot about our country that we have so many children living in poverty and it says nothing good. Yeah. And just on a side note, if you are, I'm, I'm trying to collect more resources around apps and different like websites where you can look and research your local politicians and what, what, where they stand on different issues. So if you have recommendations for that, feel free to DM me at the PH millennial or email me the PH millennial at gmail.com and share those. Cause I'm trying to collect more of those so that we can share that out as a tool and a resource for people who are thinking about getting involved in their local politics, but just don't know what the issues are, where people stand, et cetera, et cetera. So appreciate you all. All right. Is it equity in action time? It's always equity in action time. <laughs> oh, guys, it's the <laughs> it is the time for figuring out if Omari is going to start to catch up to me and um, how many times he's won. Do we have the scoreboard? Because I, I do not know the score. I'm not keeping the score. I'm just living my life. I don't have it either. I think we're going right. to have to go back to the episodes to figure All this right. out. Well, we will figure it out. That's the, that's the easy thing. We got them recorded. They uploaded. They're there for life. <laughs> so how comfortable are you when we're talking about nurse practitioners and primary care physicians? Not too sure. Depends what the question is. Depends on what the question is. Of course, it always does. All right. So for if this is your first time listening to Equity in Action, this is where Omari and I try and stump each other on public health, health equity, and health-related facts, I'll say. Um, we ask true or false questions, and essentially, we will always give you the backstory to the question that we ask. But it is just a fun game that you can also ask people around you. Um, and yeah. Ready? Are you ready? Ready. Okay. All right. Let me let me make sure I have it right. She's getting scared, y'all. I am. I just okay. Here it is. True or false. By twenty thirty. There will be three nurse practitioners to every physician in the United States. Would you be able to give me context if that would be an increase or a decrease in the ratio? Or is that off, off the tables? That's off the tables. So 2030, there are going to be three nurse practitioners to every physician. Correct. True or false? I feel like that that ratio has has to be higher. I, I feel I feel like it has to be higher. I don't I don't know if it's um like medical schools are doing a good job of getting more people to become physicians, or nursing schools are doing a less good job and less people are becoming nurses. <laughs> that's 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 a tough one because in my head I'm like. It's they got to be more nurse practitioners to physicians, just generally speaking. I don't know what the ratio is, but one to three sounds small. So for that reason, I'm I'm gonna have to say that's false. You are correct. You are correct. So actually, the 
Projections suggest that by 2030, and I'm looking at a health affairs article, um, it says there will be two nurse practitioners to every physician. Oh, I was like, I was thinking the other way around. So I'm you glad were. that I, <laughs> <but> it, <laughs> this is why it's true and false and not answer and like fill in the blank. This is how your boy gets points. <laughs> this is how your boy gets points. I would have been like one to five or something like that. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So they're essentially saying that over the, this article is titled a decade of data an update on the primary care and mental health nurse practitioner and physician workforce. And what they're saying is that the number of primary care physicians, so MDs and DOs has continued to decrease while the number of primary care nurse practitioners has increased. However, it's not enough to account for how much primary care we need in the country. So they are a couple of things that they say to that we should be doing policy implications for this and all the kind of things that we need to do better in order to meet the needs of our growing population. To note, this was the first year that they actually included data about behavioral health nurse practitioners as well. Um, because we know that we are facing multiple me- mental health crises. And so, yeah, that that was our equity in action um, quiz. Omari, I feel like you are catching up, though. Def- I'm definitely feeling the momentum because I think you got <laughs> wrong last month. I got right I this month. I did get month. it wrong so the- last month, so, yeah. So the-, so the momentum is picking up. So, you know, we- we're going to end this last quarter very strong. So uh, I'm going to come with some good questions, come with my good answers, even though my rationale made sense. The answer that I was thinking in my head was wrong. But think since it's a true or false quiz, I was right. So, like, that's all that matters. That's all that yes, matters. that is all that matters. Right. And I, I think it's interesting. And I think it's something that we should think and talk more about because many times in our masters of public or just in public health in general, we talk about the physician shortages or we talk about nurse shortages or psychologist shortages, but we never talk about public health shortages and what that looks like. And I know the, um, the Beaumont Foundation has done the public health wind survey where they, they estimate that 80,000, there's a shortage of 80,000 public health professionals at the state and local level. Um, and I think like this is a good analysis to think about, but like, why don't we have ratios against physicians or nurses? So that's, that's my call to action. Someone create some ratios around public health professionals and nurses and physicians. And let's see if like that relates back to population health detail or something like that. So if someone's thinking about a topic, that could be a dissertation right there. Just, um, credit me, give me a call. Let me know it's, it's going down. Yeah, it can't be my dissertation, but it is a good topic. Hey, just coming up with ideas. But y'all, um, I'm glad that I got that point. Uh, glad that we got to chat a little bit more about these issues. And I'm I'm glad that we're raising awareness around it. Y'all, please do your part to advocate around it. But thank you all so much for tuning in this month. Be sure to subscribe if you have not as yet. Share this with a friend. Ask them that health equity in action quiz, hear their rationale, and then like have the discussion. Um, I think this is important conversations that we need to continue to have. So appreciate you all tuning in with us and have a great rest of your week and month. Bye, everyone. See you next month. Peace.